Let's pray. Lord, we've been commanding our souls to arise and behold the risen Christ. What an awesome thing we've just been doing all morning so far and in this last song. Lord, we are amazed that that's even possible, that my sin-sick soul could ever arise and behold the risen Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is risen, that he is the anointed one, the Christ, that you, by the Spirit's power, enable our souls to arise and behold him and see the glory of God in his face. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to do just that, to behold the risen Christ, not with the same physical eyes the disciples did, but with spiritual eyes, with eyes of faith that you enable. And Lord, I pray for the very same transforming work to be done in our hearts that you did in the hearts of those who did see Jesus face to face. Jesus himself tells us that we're blessed when we don't see but believe. So we pray that you would lead us to deeper belief, for some to saving belief, for all of us, Lord, to belief that enables us to see Christ, to love him, to know his love and be drawn closer to him. This morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to John 21. We just couldn't be satisfied with Easter only lasting one Sunday, so we've extended it over a month, and we have been talking about Jesus risen from the dead and the way that is worked out in our lives as we've looked at these revelations of Jesus in the Gospel of John after his resurrection as he shows himself. We have this third and final revelation of the risen Christ to the disciples and to us here in John 21. We're going to read the entire chapter together, all 25 verses. Sometimes I know it can be tempting to glaze over when the Bible's being read and then you perk up again for the jokes and stories and stuff. So let's do the opposite. Let's, let's hang in there for all 25 verses, staying super engaged. The only thing you're gonna hear all morning that's actually directly the word of God is what I'm gonna be reading from John 21. So let's do that together. John 21, listen to this amazing, wonderful revelation of God in his word. John 21.1. After this... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. Third time he's revealed himself, one time on resurrection morning, second time eight days later to the disciples, and now again on the shores of Galilee. Again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself, notice that word revealed, he's, he's revealing himself, he's showing himself to his disciples and to us. We'll hear that word again near the end of the passage, the first section of the passage. The Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and 
two others of his disciples who don't get named for some reason. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's kind of funny to me for some reason. Uh, they don't get named, but he wants us to know there are seven. John loves details. You'll notice as we read this story how true that is. He loves vivid details. Two others of the disciples were together. So they're together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Now, there has been a lot of speculation through the years of just why Peter goes fishing here. What's going on here? Some people read quite a bit of negative motivation in this, that he's sort of giving up. He's going back to his old ways. He's left God's calling. I, I just, I, I've never met a fisherman who needed a really good reason to fish. Right? So, yeah, Dave knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. So he goes fishing. It's what he knows. Jesus actually said, I'm, I'll, I'll meet you in Galilee. So they're actually where he said he would meet them. I don't think we need to read all sorts of things into this, that his vocation was more important to him than following Jesus. I don't think this is him turning his back on Jesus. I think he's just going fishing. It's what he knows. Uh, he's, he's sort of in a holding pattern that Jesus has put him in. Yeah, you, you might want to say, come on, Peter, go plant a church or something. Yeah, this, is a, this is a time in between the resurrection and these appearances and then the great commission and Jesus ascending and then the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes in power. You can forgive the disciples for feeling like they're not quite sure what to do right now. So they go fishing. Makes perfect sense to me. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Skunked. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Can you just imagine this? The sun's rays are just starting to come over the horizon, the mist rising off the sea after a night of no fish. Visibility is poor. Jesus is on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? This word paideia translated children is an interesting word. It can be translated uh, boys, in, if you're in England, lads, um, uh, fellas, you know, it, it can be a, a chummy sort of way of talking. He's saying, boys, did you catch anything? <laughs> Knowing they hadn't. And their answer's very funny to me. No. <laughs> Can't be happy about it, right? No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. They just do it. Maybe they're just feeling out of options. They just do it. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the apostle John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it, it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. John, the man thinking these things through, Peter acting them out. True to form. The other disciples 
came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. Remember that. We'll get back to it later. In place. With fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Apparently he needed some more. He's providing the fish through this miraculous catch, but now he wants to put it to work, feeding his friends. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. They couldn't get it in the boat, but Peter goes over and pulls it in. Must have been a pretty buff fisherman. Um, But there it is, he pulls it in. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. How wonderful is this? Jesus has just conquered death. He's just proven himself to be the Lord of the universe in his resurrection from the dead. And one of the first things he does is make breakfast for his friends. I love this. This is just incredible. He makes breakfast for his friends. What a kind, what a simple act that the resurrected Lord does for his friends. Come and have some breakfast. I've got some important things to say to you, he's no doubt thinking. So I need to make sure that you're nourished because this may be difficult, especially for Peter. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. We get an indication of just the size of the fish and the amount of the fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, I want you to realize that this is one of those passages in the Bible where through the centuries, interpreters, in my opinion, have gone way overboard in trying to overinterpret. And and I, I do want to pause here because I, I'm concerned that this way of interpretation is, is appealing to a lot of us. Let me just give an example. This number 153, if you read the history of efforts to interpret this, it's just amazing where people go. Jerome, an early interpreter, he said, well, uh, there, there are 153 kinds of fish. There, there was 157 in an old document that he was probably thinking of. Well, the number's off, but we'll use it anyway. And, and so that means there are 153 kinds of fish, and so this is an example of, of Jesus making them fishers of men and a symbol of people from every nation coming in because we have every kind of fish symbolized here. And, and then there are other interpretations that add up, take the numbers, 153, and find the corresponding Hebrew letters, and then come up with very fanciful, interesting interpretations based on this thing called gematria, this, this, this numerical way of unlocking ideas. And then people took uh, different, different ways of figuring out the numbers, like, well, these are multiples of 17, which is 10, which is the number of the Ten Commandments, and seven, the seven spirits of God going out of the world, and wow, before you know it, you think, wow, if I'm going to understand the Bible, i got to be super creative. <laughs> Do you know why I think it says there are 153 fish? Because there were 153 fish. <laughs> and because I know fishermen. Have you ever met a fisherman who doesn't tell you how many he caught? 
and the size, it's just how it is, right? Again, the reason I bring this up is because we've also got an interchange about to come up where Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus uses one Greek word for love, uh, this, this word agape, agapao, and then, and then he switches it to phileo, and people have read so much into that, and I, you've probably heard sermons, and probably may some of you have told people how cool and insightful this is. I just don't think it's actually there. I, John loves variation. You can't just read meanings of words based on a definition. It just doesn't quite work that way. And do you know the word phileo, this supposedly lesser word, is used in John for the, fa- for the father's love for the son. And do you know in the New Testament, Paul uses agape for Demas' love for the world that was terrible. So it, you can't just insert this and assume all this meaning is there. I say these things because I'm very concerned that we like really creative, mysterious, background ways of understanding the Bible. And I think what we can be doing is undermining our trust in the clarity of the Bible. You don't need a PhD in Greco-Roman history to understand the Bible. Now, it can be helpful and insightful at times. I'm not saying that it can't be helpful and that there aren't passages that are hard to understand, but generally, the Bible doesn't take some super creative way of understanding. If so, you might feel like you're so dependent on the preacher who knows these things that you don't feel the confidence to just read your Bible and understand it as the Spirit works and, and helps you be changed by it. And so, as I was studying for this passage, I was just amazed at how many different ways of interpreting, right down to reading all kinds of stuff into why Peter went back to fishing. Let's just stay with what's here as much as we can, and that's what I'm gonna try to do today. So, that's a little little side note, just because, you know, most, most of us have never taken a class on how to interpret the Bible or read a book on it. We just absorb that interpretive method by osmosis, by what we hear in teaching and preaching. And I, sometimes I want to pause and just say, how are we doing this? What are we doing? What's, what's the way to really respect what we believe about the Bible and its authority and inspiration and inerrancy and clarity is a massively important thing too. I, I'm hearing more and more of, well, I know that's what it seems to say. But if you understood the background, you realize it doesn't mean at all what it seems to say. And, and so I think how we appro- approach the Bible can set a precedent for getting the Bible very wrong. And so so I just want to make sure we're affirming the clarity of the Bible. Now, John loves symbolism. I'm not saying there aren't sometimes intentional symbolic things going on. And I'll actually mention a couple I think are here. But the 153 fish, I think there were 153 fish. Listen to Jesus, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. There it is again. He starts this story saying this is the third revelation. He reaffirms that here. Here's Jesus revealing himself. And watch where he takes things. He's fed them breakfast in this beautiful act of kindness and simplicity. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, I have no reason to think that the other disciples 
didn't hear this conversation. Maybe he starts, as I think a little bit later, going on a walk, maybe getting some distance from them, but with John following, probably so he could still hear. But he turns to Simon. He's got some work to do with his friend Simon's heart. Very intentional here. He turns to Simon and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these. More than these what? It doesn't say. Some people have thought it's the tools of fishing for him built on this idea that he was somehow idolatrous and betraying Jesus again, going back to fishing. I don't think there's a reason to think that. I think what's going on here when he says these is the disciples. Do you love me more than these disciples? And, and I'll get to why I think that in a little bit. Do you love me more than these, these others? And it's interesting. Watch, Peter doesn't stay with the comparative invitation. He just goes right to Jesus. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus' response is so important. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Probably imagery of crucifixion, which history tells us is the way Peter died. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In death, he glorifies God. That's one of the goals we have when we come here on Sunday morning, to glorify God in our deaths. We come here to prepare to die. And we want to glorify God in that death as Peter did in his. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So John is trailing behind. They're on a walk now. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, this is so interesting, Jesus just told Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. And his response is fascinating. When Peter saw John, verse 21, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? I find that fascinating that the, the apostle John wants to make sure we include the word if in Jesus' quotation here. 
It really matters what the words are. You can get it all wrong otherwise. Verse 24, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were to be written. Well, there's so much here, so much here. I would love if we could spend six months on this passage, but we've got about 20 minutes. So, seven observations. Seven points I want to make. Yes, seven. I'll get through it. Watch. You'll be amazed. As amazing as the miraculous catch of fish. Yes, I will get through seven points. I shouldn't have said that because somebody will say, you stopped at five. Well, talk to me after if I do that. But... Um, I know some of you are helped by this. Seven observations. The first one is let's live together. I just love, it says in verse two, they were together. It, It says in verse three, we'll go with you. If you read these resurrection accounts, they're amazingly communal. They're amazingly relational. The only time Jesus reveals himself to an individual is when he does to Mary. And you know the first thing she does? Runs to the others. There's something profoundly relational and communal about this. And I simply want to say the togetherness is not to be missed here. God does not primarily reveal himself to individuals on mountaintops. He does it among the people of God. With all our messiness, with all of the frustrations that come with that, with all the disappointments and denials and even betrayals and wounds that are caused by the fellowship of God's people, but we're committed to it because God has said in that fellowship, in that deep relating to one another, he reveals himself. Now, he's always present and always revealing himself in all kinds of ways, but there is an acute revelation of God, a vivid revelation of God, a a power powerful revelation of God that's only experienced among the people of God. That's why we gather like this. Not just to hear the preaching of the word, which is another means of grace, but to do it as the gathered people of God. We'll go with you. They were together. This happens over and over again. And so let's stay committed to the people of God. This is how all will know you're my disciples. By your love for one another. Yes, a love worked out in the difficulty of relationships with fallen people. That's why the church is so absolutely non-negotiably necessary for our lives as Christians, for our growth as Christians. We've got way too many Christians these days who think that they're freelance Christians. They're not committed for the long haul to the communion of saints. And so, let's do this together. Two, love is the key. Think of all the things Jesus could have asked Peter. Peter denied him three times, bitterly denied Jesus. Think of all the things he could have said. Think of all the things that I certainly would have been inclined to say if I were in Jesus' place. He asks him, do you love me? He doesn't ask, how could you? He asks, do you love me? He doesn't ask, are you gonna betray me again? He doesn't ask, what was going through your mind? 
Why did you do that? Maybe one of the dumbest questions we parents ask. They don't know. I don't know most of the time why I do stuff I do, especially the bad stuff. So, yeah, uh, why did you do that? Oh, Dad, I'm, I'm just, my heart is deceitfully wicked would be a great answer every time, right? <laughs> you got me there. You got me there, right? You know, think of all the questions Jesus could have asked. You don't think you're going to serve in my kingdom now, do you? You've completely forfeited that. Who do you think you are? Think of all the things he could have asked, but he asks, do you love me? He gets right to the bottom line because if you know Jesus' love for you, you'll love him. He's the only one who it's completely true to know him is to love him. Jesus loves and so we love because he first loved us and when we know his love for us, we love him. Jesus, we're told elsewhere, has already met with Peter before this encounter. It seems that after his resurrection, we find out in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus that Jesus made a special trip to find Peter, the one who denied his Savior. Again, no doubt to offer forgiveness and restoration and healing. And love is the key. Love is what this is all about. He wants to know, do you love me? Now that will always start with, do you know his love for you because we love because he first loved us. But what we need to be asking ourselves is, do I love Jesus? That's what this is all about. This is not about religious observance and practice and externals and doing all the right things externally. It's about having a heart of love for Jesus that obeys him out of a heart of love, never a heart to earn something or prove something, but a heart that has been set free by the love of God because loved people love people people and he's saying do you love me and every time Peter says yes and he said well then I want you to know the primary implication of your love for me love my people care for my people love for Jesus is the primary inspiration and motivation of our love for other people we love each other because we fear Jesus, because we love Jesus and that's a necessary connection Jesus is calling Peter to make do you love me not why did you do that, but do you love me? Notice Jesus is the, the focus of the love, the object of the love. That's where it all needs to start. And gratitude then becomes the attitude and Christians then repent and turn to Jesus and find his matchless love and we are freed then to love others the way he's loved us. And he heals and forgives and we find new life in him. Point one, commit to community. Point two, love is the key. Point three, true love hurts. Jesus goes about expressing his love to Peter in a way that hurt. We're told it hurt, right? He was grieved because he asked him a third time. He was grieved. He, 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 he didn't go away saying, yippee, I just love hanging out with Jesus. He's sad. He's made to grieve. Again, he's made to, yes, tap into these feelings he had the night he betrayed Jesus three times. Jesus loves in a way that hurts. Jesus is a surgeon. He's killing off Peter's pride. He's killing off Peter's fear. He's killing off the things that will keep him from truly knowing and loving Jesus and truly knowing and loving Jesus' sheep. 
Three times he asks him. I don't think it's a coincidence Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter denied him three times. That quite a point is made of that. He asked three times again. There are some real similarities here. It's, it's just as the sun's about to come up, the cold of the night, the dew of the morning, the even charcoal fire. Listen to Matthew 26. Jesus says, you'll fall away because of me this night, Peter. As Jesus is going to the cross, he says, you'll fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd of the sheep and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See, that's, I think, why they went to Galilee. He said that, but Peter answered him. Listen to Peter's boast. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That's why I think he's saying, do you love me more than these? These other disciples, you were boasting that even if all of them betrayed you, you wouldn't do it. You alone would have been the one who had the courage and the, and the fortitude and the guts to follow me no matter what. And the faith and the trust to follow me no matter what. And look, look what Jesus says. He, he hurts him again with the wounds of a friend. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter basically says, you don't know what you're talking about. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. You got this one wrong, Jesus. You obviously don't know me. You need to know me better than you do. Listen to what he says in John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Mr. Big Talk doesn't come through on the big talk. John 18, just go one page over, or two. Look at John 18, verse 18. Uh, we'll start... Start at 15. John 18, 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, similar to the scene we're looking at now. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. You also are one of this man's disciples, aren't you? Are you, she said? I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. I really wonder if Jesus made a charcoal fire to bring this memory back, as painful as it must have been. Because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So in the face of a little girl, a servant girl, he denies Jesus. Mark 14 concludes this very same story this way. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. What we see here is godly sorrow for sin, and I please listen to this. God's love hurts in the best possible way. 
God's love hurts in the way a surgeon's scalpel hurts. And the way chemotherapy hurts us. I have had lots of friends who've gone through cancer and when they're given the options between a mild treatment, a middle-of-the-road treatment, and a get-after-it treatment, almost all my friends I can think of say, let's take care of this. They don't want to mess around with something like cancer and you don't want to mess around with something like sin and redefine it in ways that makes me feel better about myself because if I don't find the hurt of sin in my life, I will never find the healing of sin in Jesus' life. And true healing involves hurt along the way. And if your primary concern is feeling good about yourself, if your primary concern is to never have your feelings hurt or never feel offended by the way God is describing you, you'll never get to true forgiveness. You'll never get to true healing. And so realize that Jesus takes his dear, beloved Peter on a difficult journey back to the betrayal, right back to the denial. He doesn't soft sell it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't use euphemisms to explain it. He takes them right back and he gets to the heart of the question. Peter, the reason you were a coward and didn't proclaim my glory to that little girl is because you don't love me in that moment. And so I'm not gonna get into the details of all that, Peter, but I wanna know the bottom line question. Do you love me? Because love for me, because of my love for you, will give you the courage you need. It'll give you the boldness you need. I hear so much these days about love. Defined in a way that does nothing but affirm. That does nothing but say, oh, you're wonderful, you're awesome, just the way you are. Don't ever think you need a change at all. That's not true love. That's not how God loves us, thank God. He tells us, I, did a, uh, I had a conversation with someone who's becoming a member in our church and I, I said, what do you hope never changes about grace? And she said, oh, I hope we never stop talking about sin and the sinfulness of it. That's a, not a common thing to hear. What are you looking for in a church? One that talks about sin and describes it for what it is. This is something we want to do. We want to tell the truth. And if you think love is just affirmation, Regardless of what's going on, no love tells the truth. And Jesus took Peter on a very difficult journey back to it. Have you ever felt this instinct to rush through someone's apology? You know, I thought about our interaction a few months ago, and I'm really sorry. And you're like, oh, no, I know what you're talking about. Liar. It's been festering for months. And the time to really deal with it comes, you're like, no, 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 let's, get, let's just get this over with. I don't like this, this is uncomfortable, this is awkward. Awkward is another thing, right? Avoid that at all costs. You gotta learn to love awkward. A lot of good stuff happens. And uh, this isn't easy, yeah, how about them Lakers? It, it's, no, 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 stay right where it is, right? Have you ever felt the need to rush through and, and change the way things really are and not really confess sin, but just say, I'm sorry if I hurt you? which is another way of saying, I'm sorry, you're overly sensitive. And we don't repent well, and we don't forgive well, because we rush it, because it's difficult and it's painful, but Jesus calls us to this kind of difficulty and this kind of pain. Peter failed, and Jesus does not want to glance over this. There's got to be a capacity for sanctified self-dislike. Right? Can, you, can you hate your sin? 
Can you hate your heart? Can you hate who you are in that sin even? Yes. Can you say, I abhor what's going on in my own heart? This is not God's ways and this is not the way of love and life and so I hate, I do the very thing I hate, Paul says, right? Can we talk that way? Can other people talk that way without you saying, no, 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 don't talk that way, no. No, it's not self-loathing as an end that you swallow in it, but it's a process that's necessary on the way to truly owning our sin. A godly sorrow leads to true repentance, the Bible says. Without that, it's false repentance, in other words. Without that, it's not going to get us to true healing. Don't settle there. Don't settle for that. So one, commit to community. Two, love is the key. Three, true love hurts. Four, repent. There's this incredible freedom and true repentance. I see my sin for what it is. God's revealed it to me. And I say, woe is me. What can I do? And I turn and I run from self and sin to Jesus and I find awesome forgiveness. I mean exhaustive forgiveness. I mean deep, true, real forgiveness. Not a cheap imitation of the the real thing, but the real thing. So Psalm 103 says, God takes my sin and throws it as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says that that if we confess our sin, truly confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's amazing grace. And so we depend on him. In salvation, we depend on every day as our great high priest who lives forever to intercede for us with his forgiveness and his righteousness he gives to us. And we depend on him every day for this. And we live then in the freedom we have, not because we've tried to minimize our sin, but we let it be what it is, ugly and disgusting before God. And then we flee to him knowing that he's a God who loves to forgive, never think God's stingy in any way. Depend on him and find that you are a new creature in Christ. The old things have gone away, the new things have come and we press on to the upward call then in Christ Jesus. And in Christ we can be loved and forgiven and righteous and adopted into his family forever and know the freedom of that. And then we can say, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and who indeed is present tense interceding for us. John says in one of his letters, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so flee to Jesus, repent and run to Jesus. Oh, do you remember when Jesus shows his miraculous power previously to Peter? And what does he say? Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. But now he sees his Lord on the shore after having received his forgiveness. And he can't wait for the boat to get there. He jumps in the water and swims to the shore because he wants to be with Jesus. He flees to him now. He then finds that Jesus still has some hard work to do in his life, but we find then that true love, true love heals and true love restores. And Jesus loves to forgive and he makes us useful again. 
It's not just that we're forgiven. I actually don't like that bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, that's true, but it's so much more than that. I want a bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't just forgiven. We are declared righteous and holy and blameless in the sight of Almighty God, and we have union with Christ by faith in Him, and we're adopted into His family and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it'd be a big bumper sticker, but it'd be worth it. I mean, your paint job will be okay. I mean, just put it around the car. Yeah, it's so glorious what He does for us. What He does for us, He heals us, He forgives us. And then he says, and now live a fruitful life. Now feed my sheep. Now care for my people. Bring in the fish. I'll make you fishers of men. Do evangelism. Preach the gospel. And when people come to Christ, feed those sheep. They need food. Care for those sheep. Tend for them. They need direction. They need care. Feed my sheep. Be a fisher of men. Feed my sheep. And we love Jesus by feeding his lambs, point six. We love Jesus by feeding his lambs. Our love for Jesus translates into our love for each other. You know, it's interesting. There are two Im- images of the people Jesus has us reach, the fish in preaching the gospel and bringing people to him. But then we've got to change the metaphor because we all know what happens when fish are caught. They die. But that's not what happens. So now he switches to sheep, and the sheep need care. They need tending. So if you love Jesus, you love his people. If you love Jesus, you love his people, and that means you care for his people. You come in here not just saying, man, I hope they sing the songs I like. But how can I care for people? Throughout the week, you're thinking, how can I feed your sheep? How can I reach out to the lost people in my life? How can I be a fisher of men and a feeder of sheep? And it's not just for the pastors. It's not just the the likely suspects. All God's people are ministers. All God's people are priests. All God's people have the privilege of being part of this. Jesus says... Matthew 25, truly I say to you, as you, did to one of the, as you did it to one of the least of me's, you did it unto me. Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't persecuting Jesus directly, he was persecuting his people. But when you persecute Jesus' people, he's so connected to them, it's no different than persecuting him. That's how we need to view the people of God. We love the people of God. We move toward the people of God, not away from them. It's actually cool these days to be super critical of the church within the church. It shows what a free thinker you are, as if you're not part of the problem. And not a necessary part of the solution. What, uh, people, people will ask me, what, what, what's, what are your hobbies? I honestly have never had a good answer to that. I don't really have one. I don't fish, I don't do woodworking, I don't have anything that fits that definition of hobby. And I don't tell people what, the only thing I could kind of think of that I do in that sort of way, and it's, I go to funerals. I do, I, I, make, a, I make a habit of going to funerals when I'm able to do it of, of people who I know that I and my kids are gonna learn from. I try to bring any kid who'll go with me. Sam went with me last Friday to a funeral of a man I adore. usually don't feel this way about your auto mechanic, but in Fred's case, it's different. Uh, Fred owed Fred's automotive for 50 years on Telegraph, and 20 years ago, I took my car to him. The first time I met him, I knew he loved Jesus, and I knew the guys working at his shop loved Jesus because of Fred's witness, and grew in Christ because of Fred's witness, and over the years, I was just always encouraged. Anytime I saw him, even if it it was for two minutes, which it really never was with Fred, 
because he'd want to talk about what God was doing through the ministry. He was, he was a, a drug addict and an alcoholic, and he was a biker and a bad dude when everybody's hair was long, including mine. And, and Jesus said, you're coming with me now. And Fred had an amazing turnaround. And when you were with Fred, some things were really obvious. He loved Jesus. And there was a beautiful simplicity to that and a boldness to it. I have Fred's business card right here. If you look in the penny saver, whatever it's called around here, there's a picture of Fred and he's got a big old crescent wrench here and his big old New King James Bible right here. And I bet some of you younger people say, oh, that's kind of cheesy. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Fred didn't care if you thought he was cheesy. He was going to tell people about Jesus. Fred loved Jesus, and it was so evident to anybody who met him. I went to his funeral with my boy Sam last week, and the place was packed. And I looked around, and I knew about half the people there were, were followers of Jesus because of Fred's witness. He had a ministry to people coming out of addictions that's been amazing over the last 30, 40 years. And everybody said, yeah, everybody knew that if you were tempted, you could call Fred at 2 a.m. and he'd be over in 15 minutes. Every guy in his Bible study, Fred would sit in church and we all knew he was always taking mental attendance at church. And the first thing he'd do when he gets home would say, hey, bro, I didn't see you this morning. Where were you? One of the guys who spoke at Fred's funeral said, the first time he did that, my thought was, I'm a grown man. I don't need you telling me what I'm supposed to be doing. And he said, but after about three months, I realized how desperately I needed my brother to tell me what I was supposed to be doing. See, let me talk to Grace a little bit. This isn't all of us, but most of us were raised in Christian homes. And so we think the grass is greener outside of God and his ways. But we're not sure. We haven't jumped into it as much as Fred had. So we're actually tempted to think it might be better outside of God and his ways. And Fred knew better. He wasn't looking back. And there was a boldness. And we can be pretty heady at grace. We can be a pretty academic kind of church. And so we can overthink everything. And so we're not boldly preaching the gospel. We're not moving toward people and loving them the way we need to. Oh, I love Fred Simpson. I can't wait to get to heaven and see the thousands and thousands of people who are there because of Fred's witness. The same week, the day after I went to Fred's funeral, I came across this as I was reading Robert Murray McShane. Oh, brethren, be wise. Why stand ye all the day idle? In a little moment, it'll all be over. A little while, and the day of grace will be over. Preaching, praying will be done. A little while and we shall stand before the great white throne. A little while and the wicked shall not be. We shall see them going away into everlasting punishment. A little while and the work of eternity shall be begun. We shall be like him. We shall see him day and night in his temple. We shall sing the new song without sin and without weariness forever and ever. Let's live with a love for Jesus that leads to a boldness in preaching the gospel and feeding the sheep that he calls us to feed. Let's have ownership of this. And along the way, let's kill comparison. I love where this goes. Jesus says, you're going to die a martyr's death, Peter. And what does Peter say? What about John? It's going to happen to him. And Jesus basically says, mind your own business. 
What's that to you? You follow me. Let's not compare. Let's, let's not say, oh, if only I had a life like that, or at least I don't have a life like that. And let's say, Lord, I just want to follow you. I want to follow you faithfully. And here's the glorious news. Jesus is still feeding his sheep through the people of God, through the word of God, through service and through worship that we've been doing. He's still feeding us. That's why we come because we're hungry and we need feeding. And one of the ways he feeds us that is most powerful is through the Lord's Supper. It couldn't be more basic, but it couldn't be more deep. It's taking some bread and some juice and reminding ourselves of Jesus' body and blood for us. His love poured out through himself for us. That's what this is. So as the servers come forward, I just want to invite you to come to the Lord's Supper, realizing that Jesus is still feeding his sheep, and he does that with us together. He does that with us collectively. If you're not a believer, if you've never trusted Jesus, or if you're a believer in rebellion, this table isn't for you unless you repent and ask God to make things right and then come running up here if you're a true believer. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for this amazing passage that we've been able to glean from this morning. Thanks for the life of men like Fred Simpson. I pray we would follow his example because he was following Jesus with love and faithfulness. Lord, thank you for this church. I pray that you would help us to grow in all the ways we need to as as fishermen and um, tenders of the sheep. Lord, help us to honor you and love you in the way we love one another and love people in truth, even when it hurts, knowing that you're the healer who seeks and saves the lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.